If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. And I'm Rob Attar, deputy editor. And I'm Charlotte Hodgman, the section editor. So this is our February 2011 podcast, coming up this month. He's a soldier, a sailor, an explorer, a chemist, a politician, a courtier, but above all also a writer. That was Mark Nichols on Walter Rawley. At least a third of the population of the British Isles died as a direct consequence of this terrible, terrible epidemic in 1348-9. That was Mark Ormrod on the Black Death. I didn't want to write a book that's endlessly just analysing buildings. I wanted to try a new sort of book which told the story of a city through the people. And that was Simon Seabag Montefiore on the history of Jerusalem. This monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history title. Now, before we get on to the interviews, I've invited Sarah Williams, the editor of our sister magazine for family history enthusiasts, Who Do You Think You Are?, for a quick chat about a major event that's happening in London this month, which this year is being run by BBC Magazine's Bristol. The event is called Who Do You Think You Are Live? So, Sarah, what is Who Do You Think You Are Live? Well, it's not really a one word to describe it. It's a sort of combination of a show, a conference and a, a giant family history fair. It's run at London's Olympia, runs from the 25th to the 27th of February. And um, I mean, you can go and be entertained by speakers such as Monty Don and Hugh Quashi, who will be talking about their experiences on the programme. Who do you think you are? And uh, But you can also go, there'll be a number of talks from leading experts on every aspect of family history. So you can learn a lot, um, find out about tracking down military records or how to use wiki for your research. You can also um, wander around and visit lots of stands um, and find out more that way. And just for anyone who hasn't clocked it, Who Do You Think You Are is the BBC television programme where celebrities trace their family history. That's right. But the, the show, that Who Do You Think You Are Live, is, is much more about you, you tracing your own and, and helping you to do that. OK, so who's going to be at the event? Well, I mean, apart from the 15,000 visitors that they'll be expecting, there's going to be big shots like Ancestry and Find My Past, um, and they'll be there with their experts showing you their records and explaining how to use their services. There'll also be various companies, archives, large archives, small archives, military organisations, so there'll be a lot of material there, a lot of people on, on these stands to help you, and also dozens of family history societies from all around the country. So it's a great opportunity. It's the only time you get all of these people under one roof at one time so if you do plan um, your day well you can really get a lot done which is great okay and if you're interested in going how can you find out more well we've got the show guide has just been published so that's available with the february issue of who do you think you are magazine that's on sale now so that should help you um, find out what's happening and, and who's going to be there but you can also go to their website who do you think you are live .co.uk, and that gives you a timetable and explains more about it. Tickets are £22 each. 
But if you go onto our website at the moment, we've got a special deal that runs up until the 19th of February um, where you can buy two tickets for £25, which is a great bargain. It's um, Our website is whodoyouthinkyouaremagazine.com. And of course, we'll be there. So it'd be great to meet people. Um, and I think whether you're um, a seasoned family historian or a beginner, it really is unmissable. OK, thank you, Sarah. Our first interview this month is with Dr Mark Nichols, co-author of a new biography of Sir Walter Raleigh. Raleigh was a fascinating man, a polymath who made his mark as an explorer, a courtier, a scholar, among many other things. Mark has written an interesting piece in our February issue on Raleigh, and I caught up with him a few days ago to discuss the highs and lows of his career and find out whether he really did put his cloak over a puddle. Who was Sir Walter Raleigh, and why was he important? Raleigh was the son of a a Devon gentleman. He came from a local family of some distinction in the southwest, and he rose to prominence at the court of Queen Elizabeth. He's important, I think, in many ways. It's interesting to study his career for what it tells us about court politics, particularly at a time of political change, as one dynasty gives way to another. He's important as an individual because I think you begin to understand the challenges, the hurdles that face people from relatively modest backgrounds when they try to rise to the very top of the tree in Elizabethan England. And he's important also for his legacy, for the way in which we remember Sir Walter Raleigh. He's remembered for different reasons as the centuries go on, and that in itself is worthy of study. You said he came from a modest background, so was it just his own talents that enabled him to rise to such prominence? By and large, yes, it was. He was the fourth and youngest son from a a respected but by no means prominent family. Having said that, his mother's family had court connections, and so he did at least have an introduction to the royal court, the centre of power in the Elizabethan world. And he had a very varied career, didn't he, Raleigh? And what would you see as his greatest achievement? Extraordinarily varied career. That's part of the fascination of the man. He tries his hand at everything. He's a, a soldier, a sailor, an explorer, a chemist, a politician, a courtier, but above all also a writer. He produced the best-selling history of the 17th century. He produced a history of the world, which was remarkably influential. And he was also a more than capable poet. Was this down to his education? Had he been particularly well-schooled? We don't know a huge amount about his education. He was at Oxford, but his school days are pretty much a mystery to us. That's not surprising. People from his rank, you very often don't know a lot about how they were schooled. But there's no doubt that he was a voracious reader. He took a trunk of books with him every time he went to sea, for example. And we know that he devoured books. And no doubt his learning, which he shows in the history of the world and in other writings, much of that came through self-teaching, through, through what he read and what he observed. Now, you've just written a book about Walter Raleigh. What new insights have you gained into his life by doing so? It's a joint work, of course, with Penry Williams, my collaborator. We've understood even more, I think, the sheer complexity of the man. I've said that he tries his hand at everything, and 
to write a satisfactory biography of the man, you have to engage with every facet of his activity. You've got to look at him as a writer. You've got to look at him as a poet. You've got to look at him as a courtier, as a man of science, as a religious skeptic. There are so many different facets. And then, of course, at the end of all of that, you've got to try to draw the threads together and come up with a credible picture of this multifaceted man. Because there are also there are quite a lot of myths and stories attached to Rawley, aren't there? I mean, there's the one about the coat over the puddle and things like that. Is it quite hard to separate the real Rawley from the legend that's grown up about him? It's tremendously difficult. And, of course, there are layers to the legend. Yes, there are lots of stories about Sir Walter. That's part of the charm of the project, really. Most of them on very close examination, don't necessarily stand up. The story of the cloak, well, it, it emerges sometime after his death. He didn't introduce potatoes to either England or to Ireland. He popularized smoking, but he wasn't the first man to smoke a pipe in England. But the glamour of this larger-than-life character attracts legends, it attracts stories, and they, of course, in the afterlife, in the legacy of Thwarter, become very important because they help us to understand why people remembered him, why they go on remembering him. Now, Walter Rawley was one of the leading lights in the Tudor court, so how did he end up falling from grace? This comes back to succession politics, the stresses and tensions that arise when one reign ends and another begins, when a dynasty ends and another dynasty begins. When Elizabeth dies, she is, of course, succeeded by James VI of Scotland. And it's a very stressful time throughout England and Scotland. No one quite knows what to make of the new king south of the border. Every courtier is out to make a good impression, not to antagonize James, not to alienate James. Now, James has heard some less than creditable things about Raleigh. He's, in a way, his mind has been poisoned against Sir Walter as a result of the machinations of other politicians in the London court. So, when he comes south, he strips Raleigh of many of the benefits that he's enjoyed under Elizabeth. And Raleigh then expresses his discontent in quite intemperate ways. And of course, technically, that is a crime, that is treason. In quieter times, in more settled times, the chances are that his grumbling would have been overlooked. But of course, these aren't ordinary times. These are difficult times when no one can really risk their own careers to say a good word for someone who's got themselves into trouble. And Sir Walter had got himself into trouble. James didn't like him. James pursued him, put him on trial for treason. And ultimately, Rawley was convicted of treason and put into the Tower of London. He was in the Tower of London for quite a few years, but why did James then take the ultimate decision to execute him? James had more or less put Raleigh in the Tower and thrown away the key, and it gradually dawned on Sir Walter that that was to be his fate. So he ever more desperately looked for ways to get out. And one of the ways he came up with was to return to South America. He'd been to South America in 1595 to Guyana on a voyage of exploration and reconnaissance. And now sitting in the Tower of London, he convinced himself and he convinced others that he had found significant traces of silver 
in South America that he could locate a silver mine and, of course, in that way make James very rich. James needed money. His coffers were pretty much empty. And so he took the risk of letting Sir Walter out of the tower and sending him off to Guyana to look for this mine. Unfortunately, things didn't quite work out. There was no mine. Raleigh could find no silver. Even more awkwardly, his men attacked Spanish settlements on the Orinoco and At that time, England and Spain were at peace. So this led to some very difficult political situation for James. And so on Raleigh's return, James was not minded to take a very charitable view of what had happened. Indeed, on Raleigh's return, James put into execution the sentence passed 15 years earlier, and Raleigh was executed. Does it seem like Walter Raleigh contributed a lot to his own downfall? Oh, certainly, certainly. He was not the most adept politician. He had many gifts, but he rather took people at face value. He couldn't control his own tongue. He was, to some extent, indiscreet. And none of those things reflect to your advantage if you're a courtier, if if you're a statesman in particular. He certainly was the author of his own misfortunes in many ways, yes. Finally, do you think Walter Raleigh was the last of his kind? In many ways, he was a typical Elizabethan. He's a a man of many parts. He has this furious energy. John Aubrey, in a lovely phrase, says that he was no slug. And that's exactly right. Raleigh was no slug. He could toil. He could labour at things. He was passionate. He entered into court life with furious gusto. I don't think in many ways he's the last of his kind because you see similar scenarios in political life to this day. You see the ambition of people who start with nothing but who want to build up their fortunes and the fortunes of their family. You see the envy that it generates by those already in the establishment. And of course, that's a fairly universal and a very old story. So there's something of the modern about Sir Walter, as well as him being a typical Elizabethan. He's fascinating for many different reasons. That was Mark Nichols of Cambridge University. His biography of Walter Rawley, co-written with Penry Williams, is published this month by Continuum. OK, let me just remind you that you can learn more about the magazine and find all manner of interesting historical features on the BBC History magazine website at our new digital home, which is www.historyextra.com. There you'll find a quiz, book reviews, news stories, blogs, uh, historical events and exhibition roundup and TV and radio previews. And it's all free to access, of course. You can also keep up to date with historical happenings via our Twitter feed, which is twitter.com forward slash BBC History Mag and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash BBC History Magazine. Now, BBC History magazine continues to be published 13 times a year, but if you'd like to read the magazine digitally, there is now a version available for computers and iPads, and you can find that at historyextra.com forward slash digital. The Black Death is widely seen as one of the greatest human tragedies that Britain has ever seen. Arriving in England from Central Asia in 1347, the disease not only wiped out a third of Britain's population, but also had a devastating longer-term effect on the demographic and psychological shape of the British Isles. I spoke to Professor Mark Ormrod from the University of York about the impact of the Black Death on medieval society. 
Um, okay, Mark, so when did the Black Death reach the British Isles and how did it spread so quickly? The Black Death arrived into the British Isles in the summer of 1348, and we think that it came through the port of Malcolm Regis in Dorset. Um, it spread out like a great infection across the country over the following few uh, months. There's a lot of debate about this because there's discussion as to the speed with which um, bubonic plague can actually travel, given that it is borne by fleas on the backs of rats. But in the course of the summer and the autumn of 1348, the epidemic spread up from the south of England through the Midlands into Wales, then into the north of England over the winter of 1348 and the spring of 1349, spreading also into Scotland and across into Ireland as well and petering out eventually during the later months of 1349 and on into 1350. So this was an epidemic that was rife throughout the British Isles for something like 18 months after June of 1348. And how would you know if you had the disease and how likely were you to survive it? The classic symptoms of bubonic plague are large, dark growths in the armpits and the groin and sometimes on the neck. These are the items called buboes from which we take the title of bubonic plague. Uh, the, uh, they are a manifestation of the fact that the disease attacks the lymph glands and um, they separate, they burst, they um, cause all kinds of infection. But generally speaking, it's the internal infection that actually is the, the reason for death. And uh, once the buboes had manifested themselves, if death was to come, uh, it usually came within a matter of something like four to five days. It is possible to survive bubonic plague. The modern studies of this disease, which of course is still endemic in some parts of the world, have indicated that you can survive and indeed develop immunity to it. But the death rates are very high and were apparently particularly high in the first outbreak in the British Isles in 1348-9, not least because, of course, nothing of this nature had been known before. This was a completely new disease, and nobody really had any immunity to it. What did contemporaries think caused the plague, and how many died from it? There were an enormous number of theories at the time. One can imagine how people took refuge in all kinds of stories about where this terrible disease had come from. And given the nature of medieval culture, it's not surprising that many saw it as an instrument of divine disfavor, that God was somehow punishing people for having gone astray. Uh, and many people argued, particularly members of the church, argued that this was a kind of commentary from on high on the uh, dissolute lifestyles that people were supposedly leading uh, in the years uh, before the plague. There was also a lively debate in the universities about the idea that this was actually caused by a disfavorable conjunction of the planets, which had bred bad air in the world um, and caused this great infection uh, to break out. What there was lacking almost completely 
was any sense of what the real medical reasons for this were and the means of contagion, the means by which the disease spread from one body to another. It's as a consequence of that ignorance, of course, that to, to a large degree, that the, the uh, epidemic was so uncontrolled and arguably had such force and such terrible consequence. Now, the, the big question of how many people died is one that, of course, exercises historians of every generation since that point, I think. Um, but today, we think that it is perfectly possible that at least a third of the population was, was wiped out. At least a third of the population of the British Isles died as a direct consequence of this terrible, terrible epidemic in 1348-9. And was there any advice issued by central government for disposing of the dead and preventing the spread of the disease? The central government found itself very preoccupied with this national emergency. And it's very interesting to see how the plague was itself partly responsible for a kind of expansion of government into new areas of social and economic control that hadn't been known particularly uh, before 1348. The great problem was that without any kind of medical knowledge and medical advice, the practical tips that might have been offered to people as to how to avoid uh, contagion um, were not part of this, of this agenda. It, what was part of the agenda, rather, was a call to prayer that the king joined with the clergy of the realm to call the people to acts of penance by which to assuage uh, this divine wrath and, and take the plague away. Um, the consequences of the plague were, were things that, that also occupied government greatly, and all kinds of new policies were developed in the aftermath of the, of the plague to try to deal with the huge social and economic disruption that it had caused to the workforce uh, of the British Isles um, in 1348 to 9. Uh, useful ideas as to how to avoid the plague were entirely lacking. I mean, it must have had a huge psychological impact on medieval society. How did people cope um, with the disease? We're conditioned today as historians to argue that in the Middle Ages, people were better at dealing with emergencies, natural emergencies and human emergencies of this kind than we are today, that they lived what were, for to, to our terms, quite brief and brutal lives, and that they might take disasters like this in their stride. I think the I think that we can be too casual about that. I think that the huge psychological impact of the plague of 1348 to 9, the, the, the suddenness of it, the unknown nature of the disease, and the, the, sheer, the sheer clearance of the country, the fact that so few people were left as a consequence of it, um, it had a major impact on, on people's psychology. And one of the things that clearly did happen in the aftermath of the plague was a growing concern about preparation for death. In the Middle Ages, 
there was a there was always concern, as it were, for um, for preparing the human individual for for making a good death, uh, for ensuring that their soul was speeded to heaven uh, upon death, and that um, prayers were said for them uh, during the time of death and in perpetuity afterwards. One of the consequences of the of the plague was the wiping out very often of the kind of family networks that were often responsible in earlier generations for maintaining the memory of the departed. And uh, whole new structures were developed in the aftermath of the plague uh, in order to ensure that people's souls should be remembered um, uh, and should be saved. So the development of guilds, for example, is a very important phenomenon of the late 14th and 15th centuries in which groups of neighbors and friends came together to form that kind of surrogate kindred uh, network that would um, uh, ensure the salvation of the souls of the departed. And as well as killing huge numbers of people, the Black Death also had a number of longer-term effects on the British Isles. Could you maybe tell us about some of those? The major change that came upon the British Isles in the aftermath of the Black Death was really a complete revolution in the distribution of wealth. The country had been very intensively farmed up until the arrival uh, of the plague and conditions of work had not been particularly good for what was then a relatively intensely populated uh, country. With the arrival of the plague and this sudden reduction in the population, and the maintenance of that reduction over several generations as a result of the successive return of the, of the plague, there, there were fewer people around to provide an effective workforce, both in the agricultural economy, which obviously was the dominant economy of the period, and in manufacturing. And not surprisingly, those workers that did remain tended to call the shots. The consequence was a major increase in the standard of living of the lower orders of English society and a consequential reduction in the standard of living of the upper orders. Now, this only went so far. Clearly, England was still, the British Isles was still very hierarchical in its social organization. But the the long-term consequences of the, of the plague for the development of, um, uh, of English rural society uh, were really very, very profound. There's a generation between the first arrival of the Black Death in 1348-9 and the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. And it's in that generation that we see some of these forms of social and political control being applied to the workforce in a way that became very restrictive and very controversial. Government and the uh, higher orders of society attempted to put the clock back and return conditions of work to the state in which they had been before the plague. But not surprisingly, people who found that having survived this terrible 
terrible incident uh, now had a better standard of living. They were very, very loath to accept these these false forms of social control that were being placed upon them. And they saw what the, 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 the government uh, and, and its conspirators were doing as as a, a kind of form of, of serfdom or servitude, that their rights were being taken away from them. This, I think, is the major reason why, in the course of this great uprising in England in the summer of 1381, the call for the abolition of serfdom was the real rallying cry of the rebels. And finally, how did the experience and reactions of the British population to the play differ to those on the continent? The reactions in the British Isles are comparatively measured. Um, On the continent, we find that there were uh, outbreaks of disorder, that there was sometimes quite widespread hysteria, and that sometimes there was very active and very worrying um, targeting of particular minority groups as though they were somehow the agents of responsibility of the outbreak of plague. So in parts of Europe, um, uh, groups of uh, Jews and Muslims, for example, were subject to pogroms during the first outbreak uh, of the of the plague. Um, we don't find that same hostility to uh, racial minorities or to or to foreign groups in England at the time. Though we should remember that there were, of course, officially no Jews or Muslims uh, in the British Isles at this particular point in in history. The other way in which the reactions in Britain differ from those on the continent is that there was a very extremist penitential movement on the continent known as the flagellant movement. This is where large groups of people gathered together in various European cities to perform acts of public penance by which they hoped to remove uh, the disfavor of God um, and to restore a uh, a contract uh, 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 with him, a contract of health, if you like. And the flagellants are so called because they undertook um, uh, public acts of flagellation in which they whipped themselves and and each other in very ostentatious and really very bleak kinds of ways. There's no indication in England that there were... uh, that there were any such um, manifestations of uh, of violent, extreme religious behavior uh, of that kind. Um, We might say, of course, that this represents a kind of um, steadiness of purpose on the part of the phlegmatic uh, English and British. I think it's also because there are very effective forms of control operating in in these societies that, that tended away from those acts of extremism. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Professor Mark Hornrod on the devastation of the Black Death. 
You can read more about the topic in our February issue, out now. Our final interview this month is with Simon Sebag Montefiore. He is probably best known as the author of a two-volume biography of Joseph Stalin. However, for his new book, Montefiore has turned his attention to the Middle East and the story of Jerusalem. Ever since biblical times, Jerusalem has been a city of great importance and its status continues to be hotly contested today. It presents a very difficult challenge for a historian, as Simon explains. Now, as this interview was conducted in a cafe, I hope you'll excuse the background sounds. You've written lots of books about Russian history, so why now turn your attention to Jerusalem? Well, I've always had two obsessions. I mean, I've always had, um, I've always had Russia, which has been an obsession since childhood. But Jerusalem and the Middle East is my other obsession, and I've been brought up with Jerusalem, really. And I've been going there since I was a very little child. All my life I've been going there. So this is a book I've always wanted to write. You were saying about how you've been there a lot, and your family actually turn up quite a lot in the story of Jerusalem. Do you find it hard to write about them in a dispassionate way when you're writing history? It's hard to write about everything in Jerusalem in a dispassionate way. I mean, Jerusalem is not just sort of a minefield of passions. But one of the things I wanted to do in this book, which is a sort of new way of doing these things in a way, is wherever possible to to follow families through. And um, my family has played a sort of small role in the 19th century and into the 20th century. Actually, it's an interesting role, because in one sense, they were kind of founders of the new city. But in another sense, they were the leading campaigners against Zionism in 1917. It's a kind of contradictory role. But all the way through the book, I've tried to follow families, because I think cities are made by families that spend a lot of time in them and that build them. So whether it's the um, Herod family or the Ottoman dynasty or, or whatever, I've tried to follow dynasties wherever possible through it, because one of the challenges of this sort of book is to give continuity to a very complicated story, and families do that. Did you find that having the family connections helps you research the book in some ways? Well, the nice thing is that it's a family connection that, of course, with Israelis, that the Montefiore connection is, is useful because they all heard of it. But funny enough, because it's not particularly associated with 20th century Zionism, it's yeah. really connected with the 19th century, it doesn't sort of in any way offend Palestinians or yeah. you know, the Palestinian side. And in any case, both sides have been hugely helpful with this book. I have been extremely lucky with a massive number of people who've helped me, Arab, Jewish, Armenian, you know, English whatever, I've been helped by people of every single ethnic group, which is absolutely necessary with a book like this. So you try to stay away from any particular religious slant? Well, I'm interested in all, all the slants. I mean, yeah. one of the great things about talking to so many different people, you know, whether they're sort of Syriacs, Armenians, yeah. Muslims, is that each of them have their own culture, which is totally different. I mean, they each have their own language, their own culture, their own history. So I've got something of everything in the book, whether it's the Georgian church or the rough and orthodox or, you know, any of these different minorities. Try and get all their voices in. I want to get all their voices in, but, but, you know, the book is really what interests me about Jerusalem. I mean, there are lots of things that one has to put in. Mm. Um, You know, one can't leave various things out. But on the other hand, I write these books really for myself, what I would like as a reader. And so this is a book about Jerusalem, the things that interest me about Jerusalem. I didn't want to write a book that's endlessly just analysing buildings. I wanted to try a new sort of book which told the story of a city through the people more than the buildings. You know, because I think there are a lot of guidebooks that just use the buildings. This is really the story of the people who made Jerusalem. It's definitely a book that you can read without even having been to Jerusalem. That's right. I mean, I wanted to write a book that could be for popular readers, but it's academically correct and up-to-date and so on, but it's really for the reader who knows nothing about Jerusalem, but is interested to ask, why Jerusalem? Why is Jerusalem so important? And, you know, why is it important in the Middle East now? Why is it the holiest city in the world? But also, 
why is it key to the Middle East now? Why is it more important now than it ever was before? And I hope that it sort of answers these questions in a way that is not sort of too heavy, too banging the drum with too many indigestible facts. It seems almost like a myth of Jerusalem and the reality of Jerusalem. When do you think they became separated from each other? When did people stop understanding Jerusalem as it actually was and start seeing it as something different? That's a good question. The myth and the reality sort of continually separate and merge. I mean, I think it really became a myth with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians, 586 BC. So that's a hell of a long time ago. That's when the Jews started to talk about Jerusalem as a beautiful woman that they'd lost. I mean, much of the most beautiful poetry ever written has been written about Jerusalem. Often as a woman, the Jewish scriptures regard Jerusalem as a sort of beautiful, sometimes a beautiful whore, sometimes a beautiful angel, you know, a beautiful daughter, a beautiful lover, in a very sensual way which, of course, is very different from the way the Christian writers write about it. But that's when it started. That's when it became a myth. And ever since then, people have had views about Jerusalem that are completely different from the reality. But that's the excitement yeah. of it. One's writing a history of it. One has to write a history of the myth as well as the um, reality. And one tries to sort of differentiate between the two. You seem to get so many people turn up in Jerusalem and they complain. They talk really excitedly about Jerusalem and they turn up and it's quite dusty and there's not much going on. Virtually everyone hates it when they arrive. Many people destroy it or kill lots of people there. And lots of people want to change it and recreate it. And there's such a difference between what really happened and the sort of myth that many people believe now, even very educated people. So this book has many challenges. Virtually everybody turns up there at some time or another. I put in the people that interested me. And some of the people who changed the most never went there. Constantine the Great, David Lloyd George, just to give two. Solomon the Magnificent. Those are three men who are the most influential in recreating Jerusalem at various times. And they never went. They never made it. They were too busy. So that's kind of interesting. But, but they all changed it so radically. They completely changed the history of it in their, in their own way. Are there any heroic figures at all that emerge in the history of the city? There are lots of heroes, but actually all of them only belong to one side or the other. There are a few that belong to everybody. Two Arabs and many moderate Jews. Menachem Begin is a terrorist and a, and a, and a monster. To, to virtually all Jews and many Arabs. The Mufti is, a, is also a terrorist and a monster for example, and yet they, both of them remain heroes to parts of their own constituency. Of course, the further one, one goes back, it's easier to make people heroes. Yeah. Because once you pass a certain stage, you know, people um, traditionally, people regard Genghis Khan as a great man, or Solomon the Magnificent, they were all incredibly brutal. So the further back one goes, the easier it is to have heroes. But the more intimately one looks at people, it's hard to have heroes. Of course, many of those monstrous people, like Herod, for example, were the greatest builders who left the most beautiful buildings. So one's tempted to admire them for their building. At the same time, one has to remember what they did to people. No one seemed to come out of the story completely blood-free, really. That's right. Everyone's done something wrong. I guess the only people who come out of it really kind of nobly are the writers. And who are they? The writers of the Bible, great poets, the Victorian writers who visited, for example, all the way up to Amos Oz and Sari Nasebe in our own time. And even they often sort of encouraged, they had a special power. I mean, even the archaeologists, there have been riots about archaeology. When they opened the, the temple tunnels, several hundred people died in the resulting riots. You know, this is an insane world where this stuff really matters. And that's right, I can't think of anybody, I can't think of any of the politicians who didn't kill somebody. It's very depressing. And yet there's something so thrilling about the sort of history, the scale of it and the, the sort of intensity of it. One still loves the city, even as one regards it as something dark and brooding and dangerous, frightening. Um, one of the fascinating things about Jerusalem is that 
it's going to be the place of the apocalypse. And um, to our secular people sitting in London, that seems like such a sort of colourful, far out idea. But actually, the number of people who believe that the apocalypse is coming and it's going to be in Jerusalem is growing all the time. And for them, it's absolutely real. And they're Christian, Jewish and Muslim. So this is, this is one of the fascinating things about this story, is that even though it seems to us that in secular liberal England and America, in New York and LA, for example, that this kind of weird becoming more and more secular, we hardly know anybody who's religious anymore. And yet, actually, there are more and more people coming religious. American evangelists, for example... Islamic fundamentalism, and of course Jewish fundamentalism in Israel. All of these people are making Jerusalem more and more important. And in the television age, when there's so much news coverage, the obsession with the Middle East is growing all the time, becoming more and more intense. And the strategic stakes are higher and higher with Iran, with, with Obama and so on. So we're living in a time when Jerusalem is ever more important and the history is ever more important to understand. So I've had great fun with this book. I've loved all the characters, all the anecdotes, all the stories, the massacres. I've also been punctilious in trying to work out as close as one can to what really happened, because it's important. And every side in the story has tried to sort of tell me their view. I've had to go away and work out what I think is actually true. And of course, that won't please everybody. It won't please anybody. It should displease everybody a bit. And um, that's a sort of slightly daunting part of this project. It's been read by all sorts of different people and none of them are quite satisfied with it, which is a good yeah. sign. They all want more of their view in it. But in the end, you can listen to it, but in the end, I, you know, I just have to decide what I think is correct and what I think is the right balance. And that in itself is a kind of daunting decision. But it's been a wonderful, I mean, I just love Jerusalem. So it's been a wonderful way to spend one's time. That was Simon Sebag Montefiore. You can read a full interview with him in the February issue of BBC History magazine. His book, Jerusalem the Biography, has just been published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. BBC History magazine is published every four weeks in the UK and costs £3.80. Look out for it in your local newsagent or supermarket or take advantage of one of our great subscription deals, whether you're in the UK or overseas. Details are in the magazine and on our website at historyextra.com. So that's it for this month. Thank you for listening. Next time round, we'll have the Battle of the Atlantic, the history of the census, and a chat with Professor Neil Ferguson on the story of civilization. Don't miss it.